1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Joshua. God God had given the Israelites many victories as they went about conquering the land of Canaan, the promised land. They defeated the walled cities of Jericho and Ai saw the sun stand still and flaming hail fall from the sky as they defeated five of the Amorite kings with their armies. Israel also saw victory over the remaining northern Canaanites with their chariots that had banded together against the Israelites. There was also victory over the giants in the land. After years of war, the land finally saw rest. God was faithful to his promises yet there was still work to be done as Joshua and Eleazar would be used to distribute the land among the tribes of Israel. We began looking at the land given to the tribe of Judah. As general of the armies of Judah, Caleb offered his daughter to any man that would have the faith and courage to conquer Kirjath Sephir. We continue to look at some biblical principles of marriage as we join Pastor Will in Joshua chapter 15, verse 15.
0: The biblical Method of marriage is we shouldn't be searching out for a spouse based on attraction or to better our position in life. Biblical marriage is based on friendship and is designed to be entered by two people who embrace the challenge of helping their future spouse become more like Christ. That's what marriage is about. When we do our premarital counseling with couples, and then when we do marriage counseling with couples, we're either trying to get them to understand this or bring them back to this truth. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it's right after the husbands are told to dwell with your wives with understanding. But then it explains why. As being heirs together of the grace of life. That's what a husband and wife are. That's what a biblical marriage is. You are heirs together of the grace of life. I remember when I read that for the first time, trying to understand it and go, what does that mean, like really mean? I thought, I have no clue. So let's break it down into the words. Heirs. What's an heir? An heir is someone who is inheriting something, right? So you are inheriting something together. What are you inheriting together? The grace, God's unmerited favor of life. So we came up with this definition that we explained to either couples who are getting married or couples who are trying to get their marriage back on track, that you have been brought together by God to help each other on your way to heaven. It's that simple. You're both helping each other as you're inheriting that eternal life. So you are called into this friendship. Now, does that mean that that friendship doesn't have a track? No, I'm not saying that, all right? I, I'm not saying go and find the person you're least attracted to and say they're a perspective because it won't be selfish. That's not, no. I, 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 I've seen Christians do that too. They'll say, I don't even like them, but I know God told me to marry them. And I'm like, uh, that's not going to end well. Listen certainly love, true biblical love, increases attraction because you begin to appreciate the things about that person, both physically, emotionally, spiritually, all those things. But generally speaking, what makes a difference between a normal friendship and a friendship where you want to do that with somebody, where you want to spend the rest of your life together, is that the friendship deepens past just a a casual level. And, And so there is a desire there to be one with that person. There's a desire there to do more. That usually... Begins to where attraction, biblical attraction, should take place. You know, attraction shouldn't be the first thing in the world just going, whoo, they're fine looking. More often than not, I have found that the best relationships are formed when it's a solid friendship before the attraction takes place. And you might be saying, oh, Pastor Will, that's great, but that's not how our marriage went. Okay, so work on being heirs together the grace of life now. Work on building that friendship up now. Work on helping each other on your way to heaven now. And I promise you, you will grow in all the other areas too. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 lists the biblical method for finding a spouse. And I believe marriages wouldn't fail if we did it that way. See, who said that land distribution borders couldn't be interesting? 1 Thessalonians 4, a pivotal passage here. Very little is said about acquiring a spouse in the scripture, but this is one of the texts that, that does talk about it. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Furthermore, then, we beseech you. So in addition to everything we've said to you so far in these first three chapters of this letter, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us about how you ought to walk, how you should live your Christian life, and how you should please God, we want you to abound more and more in that. So everything we taught you about the Christian life, everything we taught you about how to please God, we want you to grow even more into that. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. There are many commands that Paul gave to them, but one of them apparently had to do with the single life and how to find a spouse. And so in verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, your holiness, that you should abstain from fornication, from sexual sin, sexual morality. Now, how do we do that? That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel, referring to gain a spouse, in sanctification and in Honor? Honor? I would get in a lot of trouble today if I said this in a mixed crowd of unbelievers. Honor is placing value on another person. I never get the door for my wife because she's incapable of opening a door, all right? I don't ever make sure that she gets to sit down first where we go and gets to pick the seat she wants because she's incapable of handling sitting in a worse seat than I have. I'm doing it because I'm honoring her. What does honor mean? The word honor means to value someone highly, even above yourself. That's what it means. The idea here is you should learn how to acquire a spouse in holiness and through honor, through treating them as more important than you, for treating them with dignity and respect that they deserve as someone God created, which means you don't touch them. Verse 5 not in the lust of concupiscence. That's a good old King James word that it just means lust. You know, this lust of concupiscence means passion, lack of self-control. I just can't help myself. He's so amazing. She's so beautiful. And I'm like, what do you mean? If I walked up, you'd stop doing it. You can help yourself just fine. It's not a matter of not being able to help yourself is that you give full reign to your desire. But when you treat them with honor and you go, wait a second, MC Hammer can't touch this right? Dating myself, I know. Can't touch this. I'm going to give honor to that person because they don't belong to me. They're not mine to do with as I please. That doesn't change after marriage, by the way, either. Verse 6, 1 Thessalonians 4, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother. The phrase there, go beyond, means to seek to get more. To defraud means to take from your brother in any matter. Because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as we have also forewarned you and testified. Listen, if you're dating somebody, the Bible makes it clear that they're not your spouse yet. So their body doesn't belong to you. You don't get to do with it what you want or if it brings you pleasure. You don't seek to get more than they want to offer. For example, Christians ask me, particularly young Christians, they go, how far is too far? And I say, well, when do you want more? That's you're too far. For me and me and Beverly, we had a certain too far. You know, I knew that if we we could hold hands and I'd be fine. I could kiss her on the cheek and be fine. But if I touched her lips, it was problem territory. So we didn't go there. You know, we established a rule that, that we would have the holy kiss and that was it. Now I don't know where that may be for you. If for you holding hands, you might be ready to go, you know? And and if that's the case, then kibosh, you know, no holding hands for you. All right? Waiting for the text from my wife. (laughs) For God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Now, he that despises this teaching, this idea, despises not man. Oh, yeah, that was it. That was it. (laughs) He that despises this, this teaching, this truth, despises not man, but God, who has also given unto us his Holy Spirit. You so say, I can't do that. Yes, you can. You've been given the Holy Spirit. And he will help you to rein it in, to do this in a way that's pleasing, you know, to the Lord. When we look back here, I'm not saying that this was the right way, but we also shouldn't look at it as barbaric because he was trying to get the best man for his daughter, a man who would be a man of faith, a man who would step out in faith, a man that would be worthy of his daughter. And so we meet this guy, Othniel. So back in Joshua chapter 15, verse 17, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, took it, the city. And so Caleb gave him Aksa, his daughter, to wife. The word there, brother, it can mean brother, it can mean half-brother, it can mean blood relative, it can mean kinsman. Any of those can fit However, Judges one thirteen and Judges 3.9 call Othniel Caleb's younger brother. Marriage to a brother's uh, daughter was not forbidden by Mosaic law, so it is possible that they were cousins. I'm not saying that's okay. I'm just saying that's how they did things back then. Now, Othniel was indeed a man of faith because he actually becomes the first judge of Israel after Joshua dies. So Aksa did indeed marry a godly man of faith. But even with the arranged marriage, it's not like she didn't have any say in her future. Look at verse 18. And it came to pass, as she came unto him, that she moved him to ask of her father a field. Now, the phrase, came unto him, it means that she came to actually be given in marriage. As the wedding ceremony was going to take place and, and it would be made official, as that was coming up, she talked to him and she moved him. She urged or instigated Othniel to ask of her father A field. See, back then, even in arranged marriages, both parties had to give their personal agreement, their individual agreement. Your parents could say it, but if you didn't give your personal agreement, then it didn't happen. All right? That's important because God doesn't make two people one unless they make a free will vow to one another. All right? A shotgun wedding is not a real wedding. All right? Like if someone's got a shotgun to your head saying you're going to marry my daughter. That's not a real wedding if, you don't, if it's not your free will choice. You can say the words. You can have, you know, like the famous princess bride line, what he said, man and wife. But you didn't say, I do. And that's the point. It has to be a free will decision. And so that's the only marriage God recognizes, and the Jews understood that. They didn't do things like maybe the pagan nations did with their arranged marriages. They made their own choice. And so as they're conversing here, getting to know each other and spending time together, she convinces Othniel to ask her dad for a field. Now, when she gets off her donkey and Othniel asks the question, Caleb realizes that the question stems from his daughter. And so he turns to his daughter and says, what is it that you want? And so verse 19, she answered and said, give me a blessing, which means something excellent, a special favor. This is going to cost you, dad. (laughs) This is going to cost you, dad for you have given me a south land, or literally a desert land. In other words, she liked Othniel, but she didn't like the land that Caleb gave to Othniel. And so she requests here, she says, give me also springs of water. She says, I want more land. I want some that has an oasis. That's the word springs of water that means there. I want an oasis, an area, you know, from the lands that Joshua gave to you, dad. So that's gonna be land that normally you would have, I would like to have some of the, one of the springs, one of the oasises that's in the land that Joshua gave to you. And I love here, he didn't just give her one. It says he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. He gave her two. A father gifting springs of water to a bride is a wonderful example of love. But it does bring to mind something from the New Testament. In Luke 11, chapter 11, verses 11 through 13, it says, which of you, having a son, if a son asks for a bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? What's the obvious answer? No. Or if he asks for a fish, will you for a fish give him a serpent? Oh, you want some some salmon, son? Ha <laughs> ha, chew on this snake. No, you wouldn't do that. Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? No. Well, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? We are the bride of Christ, and the Father will give the Holy Spirit when we ask. Those springs of living water that will flow out of us, and all we have to do is ask. Now, we get down to verse 20, and we see the cities that were assigned to Judah, and it breaks up this area into three sections. We have the desert down here, the hills up here, the hill country, and then the valley where the Philistines were over here. And we're going to start with the desert in verse 20. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Judah according to their families and the uttermost cities of the tribe of the children of Judah toward the coast of Edom southward. So we're now in this desert area in the south. It says they were Kabziel and Eder and Jagger and Kena and Demona and Adida and Kadesh and Hazor and Ifnan, and Ziph and Telam and Baaloth, and Hazor, Hadatta and Kerioth. Kerioth is the Town that Judas was from, and Hezron, which is Hazor, Amam and Shema, and Molada, and Hazar Gadah and Heshmon and Beth Pallet, and Hazar Shua'al, and Beersheba, and of course Beersheba is the southernmost town in the nation of Israel, and Bis Jothja, and Balah and Iim, and Ezem, and El and Chezel and Horma, and Ziglag, and Madmana and Sansenah, and Lebeoth, and Shilhem and wow, that's a lot of names, Elim, and Ramon, all the cities were 29 with all their villages, which just means the town. So these 29 cities in the desert region, this whole big strip here, that's that section. The next section was the valley, and this is that Philistine area here. And in the valley, Eshtel. These are the cities that they received. And Zariah and Ashna and Zenoah and Ganim and Tapua, Enam, Jarmuth, Adullam. That's the cave that David hid from Saul in where the mighty men eventually came to him. The mighty men of God. How did the mighty men of God start off? Everyone who was disgruntled against the, the government, so as part of the Tea Party. You know, everyone who had, was owed back taxes and, and everyone who was just bitter. All those people, they came to David there in this area of the land of the Philistines in Adullam. It also mentions here Soka, Azika. Those are the two hills that were the valley in between is the Valley of Elah where David fought Goliath. Then it says Shearim and Adithaim and Gedera and Gederathayim, 14 cities with their villages, Zenan and Hadashah and Migdal Gad and Dilian and Mizpah and Jokhthiel, Lakish and Boz, Kath, Eglon, Kaban, Lamam and Kishlish, and Gedaroth, and Beth Dagon, and Naamath and Machedah, 16 cities with their villages, Libna, and Ether, and Ashen, and Jiptha, and Ashna, and Nezib, all these towns here, the important ones start to come down in verse 45. Ekron with her towns and villages, from Ekron even unto the sea, all that lay near Ashdod with their villages, Ashdod with her towns and her villages, Gaza with her towns and her villages, unto the river of Egypt and the great sea and the border thereof. So those are all those big Philistine royal cities that Israel is going to have to take out. So while Judah did indeed receive the largest chunk of land to live in, it was also the toughest land to conquer because it included four of the five royal Philistine cities. When you consider the fact that the tribe of Dan right here is given this land and only one of those five royal cities is in their land, and they said, "Uh uh-uh, we don't want that land. And they went all the way up here and took this unassigned land instead. They went as far away as possible from the land God chose for them because of one city. One city. Judah had to deal with four. They didn't go find new land. They took on that challenge. Judah would have to trust God for victory over these fierce holdouts that had fended off Egypt for centuries. And and that's a lesson for us, that even though Christ won the war on the cross, big battles still remain for us to conquer in our individual lives. We must trust that Jesus' victory there on the cross guarantees our victory even with the toughest challenges we might face. And I think that's the point where most of us struggle. You know, we see the difficult task. We think, well, my victory over this isn't guaranteed. But it is. It is guaranteed. And that's the third lesson of resting in the finished work of Christ. We have to see those four Philistine cities in our life and go, how are we going to tackle that? And go, but Jesus won on the cross, which guarantees that we will be victorious over each and every one, even if it's hard and even if it takes us the rest of our lives. Amen? We get down to verse 48, and this mentions now, it says, and in the mountains, which means the hill country. So now we're coming into those rolling hills of Judah, which if you go to Israel with us, this is the part that you'll just drive through and just think it's gorgeous everywhere. It's just south of Jerusalem there. And it says in verse 48, in the mountains... Shamir and Jatir and Soka and Danah and Kirjath Sana, which is Debir, that's the land that Caleb got, and Anab and Eshtema and Anim and Goshen and Holon and Gilo, 11 cities with their villages, Arab and Duma and Eshian and Janam and Beth Tepua and Afrika and Humta and Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron, the other city Caleb got, and Zeor, nine cities with their villages, Maon, Carmel, this is not Mount Carmel way up here, this is a different Carmel, Ziph, uh, that will come into play because the people of the town of Zith will betray David to Saul at one point. Jutah, Jezreel, and Jokdiam, Zenoah, Cain, Gebia, Timnah, ten cities with their villages, Halhul, Beth and Gedor, and Ma'arath, and Bethanoth, and Eho, six cities with their two villages, Kirjath Baal, which is Kirjath Jerim, and Rabbah, two cities with their villages. In the wilderness we see Beth, Arabah, midden and Sekaka, and nib and the city of salt, and the famous one, of course, En right here by the sea. And En is a beautiful oasis, and that's one of the places that David loved to be where he hid from Saul. And Gede was one of my favorite places to go in Israel because it's so peaceful there. It's very crowded though. So the last trip, we couldn't actually go down on the hike down there. We just got to look at it from a distance. But you go down there and there's critters everywhere. It's like a natural preserve. Waterfalls everywhere. It's just beautiful. I can see why David picked it for his hideout. You'll notice in all these cities, there was one city I didn't read. And that's the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in Judah's land. The reason it's not mentioned is because at the time Joshua wrote this, Judah hadn't conquered the city of Jerusalem yet, verse 63. As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day. Judges tells us that Judah, the tribe, actually attacked Jerusalem. It was the very first place they attacked when they came into the land to take their land. They were victorious and they burned the city to the ground. But while Judah went to go take care of the Philistines and all these other people, it says that the Jebusites came back and rebuilt the city. And it would never be conquered until David did so a few centuries later. The fault isn't that they didn't initially obey the Lord. It's that they didn't keep on obeying the Lord after the enemy came back. So while Judah initially obeyed God 100%, Joshua laments here, that the tribe didn't finish their task. They got lazy later on. And you know, guys, while there's room for retirement from work, there's room for enjoying the the end of your life and the the, the fruits of your labor, that's fine. But there's never room for retirement from stepping out in faith. There's never room for retirement from that. Because if you and I are not stepping out in faith in some way, if we're not trusting God for something in our life, we're likely backsliding. And so my encouragement is, let's not be like that. Let's be strong to the very end. Amen? You know, let's mix the promises of God with faith to the very end. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, you've given us great and precious promises. Your work is complete on the cross that thereby we have those great and precious promises. So even though the war is won, Lord, we still have to enter into and possess the land you've given to us. And Lord, maybe the land you've given to, to us might be, have four Philistine royal cities in it. They might have, you know, a stubborn Jebusite in it, you know, where they just won't relinquish that area easily. Lord, we don't want to get lazy by not continually trusting you and stepping out in faith. We don't want to start strong, but then not finish strong. Lord, we want to be those who continue on in faith, who continue on in strength, those who finish the task that you've given to us to the end of our days. So, Lord, would you fill us with faith, Lord? I think, like the disciples, you said, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, increase our faith tonight to tackle the challenges that are in our lives that we might finish our race with joy like Caleb did. In Jesus' name,
1: amen. The tribe of Judah was given a large land assignment to finish conquering. They started well, gaining much of the land. But when the inhabitants came back, they were slow to reconquer. We find later that the Jebusites would reconquer Jerusalem. We are to take God's word and mix it with faith. This is the only way we will continue to live the victorious Christian life that we are promised. Take hold of God's word and mix it with faith that God will do what he promised. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk and live in the Word.